This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Donald Today we're talking with Donald Wolfensberger, a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and the Bipartisan Policy Center. We talk about the decline of Congress from a respected legislative body to one controlled by hyperpartisanship and winning at all costs. Wolfensberger is the author of a new book, Changing Cultures in Congress from Fair Play to Power Plays, and he was a former congressional staffer for almost three decades. You spent 28 years in the House and with the Rules Committee towards the uh, end of your stint there. Uh, what prompted you to write this book after all that period of time? Yeah, well, I did. Uh, when I left the Hill in uh, February of 97, I uh, had in mind doing a book on Congress and the decline of deliberation, and that was published in 2000. It's called Congress and the People, Deliberative Democracy on Trial. And that really looked at sort of how Congress has changed over the last couple of centuries to try and stay close to the people without getting too close in the sense of direct democracy. But I found as this, as things became more partisan, uh, they were losing their ability to deliberate, uh, and uh, it was going sort of the way of, of more uh, campaigning than it was legislating. And so this book that I just uh, published uh, that came out a couple of months ago really uh, takes it where the last one left off, which was around the turn of of the century. And uh, this one starts out about 2007 when Nancy uh, Pelosi was sworn in as speaker, but it has has flashbacks and some historical context as well. But I felt uh, necessary to update the first one to see how much worse, if they had indeed gotten worse, uh, things had become, and uh, they really have uh, have gotten worse. Do you have a starting point uh, in modern history as to when it uh, got worse? I I know you point to 1995 as sort of a critical year. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that it all began with Newt Gingrich. It didn't, though. I mean, things started to really heat up around 1980. Uh, In 1979, just to give you an example, a group of – Democrats who had been part of the Watergate babies, these were very junior members that came into the Congress in 75, but they wrote to the Speaker and to the Chairman of the Rules Committee and said, uh, we want to have fewer open amendment rules on the House floor. And uh, that sort of coincided then the, in the next couple of years with Reagan coming to power and Democrats trying to reverse some of the advances that he made in the early part of his administration. So we got uh, more and more closed and structured amendment rules for the House floor because of the uh, the Democrats did not want to be embarrassed by what some would call poison pill amendments, those that would be politically oriented that could be used in campaign ads and so on. So that was really a big uh, 
a turning point in modern times, uh, in, in my estimation. But things certainly did accelerate then when the Republicans took over in 1995, and, uh, and Newt Gingrich's speaker sort of ramped things up in terms of, of even a tighter uh, procedural situation for the House floor and for committees, for that matter. Your, your premise is that, if I understand it correctly, that power is is vested in the majority leadership. That majority leadership rules everything, and nothing gets done. Is that is that oversimplified? Now that, yeah, that's the way it's 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 turning out in this uh, this last decade or so, and that's why this book I think is important in in updating my previous one because at least. Before they were at least still aiming at getting some solid legislation through and uh, enacted into law, but uh, in the last uh, decade or so, or at least since 2001, so that's a decade and a half really or more, the you know it's been it's been going more the way of campaign-oriented legislation, what I call bumper sticker bills, uh, that are designed to win points for the majority party. But the leadership uh, throughout the you know the last uh, few decades has taken over increasingly the work that committees used to do as far as hammering out uh, compromises at least among the majority party members and uh, and then directing the way the bill would be handled on the floor as well. So committees have less power, the majority leadership has more power. And we have a change coming in January, a change in majority in, in the House. Uh, we're hearing a lot of verbiage about transparency and, and changing the way business gets done. I, I'm taking it from your analysis that that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's probably a safe bet, although there's I'm always encouraged when I hear this uh, this rhetoric before the uh, the new majority takes over that we're going to return to the regular order. We're going to give committees more power. The leadership will be dictating less and so on. But this has been going on uh, every ever since uh, 95 whenever there was a a subsequent change in uh, in party control of the house uh, they just uh, tend to exchange playbooks and the old minority that's become the new majority starts acting like the old majority in other words they they uh, promise one thing and then when they get in power they realize hey we've only got 2 years and we could be voted out of power here so we've got to get some things done and and that means that the uh, the promises of a more open, transparent, uh, uh, fair procedure uh, sort of is put off, and uh, they instead concentrate on getting as many things through as they can to uh, score political points. The centralization of power that you and I have been talking about, we've been talking about the House of Representatives, is it similar in the Senate? Um, Not really, because the Senate is still... A hundred individual members that uh, yes, they do uh, still coalesce around their their party flag, but uh, the majority leader in the Senate does not have the same kind of authority that the Speaker of the House does in terms of of dictating what a committee will do, and that's why uh, the the real rough part for the majority leader is then trying to figure out how to bring things together once a committee does report a bill. And so a lot of things are done over there by unanimous consent, which means any one member can object if they have a certain amendment process that they want to use or whatever. So it's, uh, whereas in the House, you've got the Rules Committee that acts on behalf of the leadership, and they they will report a resolution saying, all right, there will be 10 amendments to this bill. The House has to then, you know, adopt that resolution before the House proceeds with the bill. But, uh, 
the Senate has it a lot rougher in terms, I think, negotiating both with their own uh, majority, within the majority, and then and trying to be somewhat fair with the minority and allowing them some amendments. If I read correctly, you spent a lot of time with the Rules Committee in 95 to 97. You were the chief of staff of the Rules Committee. Don, could you explain to the average listener out there the role of the Rules Committee when you came in compared to the role of the Rules Committee when you left and the Rules Committee now? That's a good question. Uh, I came in in January of 1969, and uh, I was a, a legislative assistant for the congressman from my home district, John Anderson of Illinois. But uh, he was a member of the Rules Committee, and so he had me helping him with all of his Rules Committee work. But the thing that uh, that stood out then was that the only time they, the majority would sort of shut down bills to amendments were were bills out of the Ways and Means Committee, tax bills. And the argument was, well, you don't want to open up the tax code to amendment or that's going to be a, a mess that nobody can predict where it's going to end up. Uh, so those were the, the occasions on which the Rules Committee would report either a closed rule or a very tight rule that would maybe allow the minority one substitute on the floor. But the role of the Rules Committee is basically to... A, provide for general debate time for major legislation, B, to allow for an amendment process, either open an, an open rule, which means any member can offer a germane amendment, a structured rule where the Rules Committee specifies what amendments can be offered in its committee report, where it lists the, the text of the amendments that it has agreed to make an order, or a closed rule, which means no amendments can be offered. And we have seen a dramatic increase uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so in closed rules. This, uh, in this Congress, which is about to come to a close in the next week or so, uh, there have been no open rules. And that was the uh, case, I think, the second Congress that the, the Democrats were last in control in 2009 and 10. They had no open rules because uh, the uh, minority party, the Republicans then, were offering uh, too many amendments. They didn't want to have to deal with a completely open amendment process. So we have seen things uh, on both sides go more and more towards closed amendment rules. One of the things that, that I take from uh, your your most recent writing is your concern over uh, the lack of debate or the lack of discussion of policy on the floor or even in committee. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, I would, uh, yeah, I'd certainly start with the committees, which is where probably the most deliberation should be happening, but the committees are very rushed now because they tend to be in session just Tuesdays through Thursdays, so they have very tight agendas and, and trying to put out a lot of bills in a short period of time. So you don't have really major policy discussions in committees. They usually go right from what's called the chairman's mark, the bill that the chairman wants to start with, and then they will have an open amendment process in committees, but usually now they're postponing votes on amendments to those bills in committees till the very end so that members don't feel as obligated to stay through any debate that might occur prior to uh, reporting the bill out. So that's, you know, that's one place where there's been a major slippage in debate. It used to be when, when I first came to the Hill in 1969, on major bills, you'd have three or four hours of general debate on the floor that the Rules Committee would allow for before you had an amendment process that was pretty much open, as I mentioned before. Right. But uh, in, in both instances now, uh, Congress is uh, just focusing on some minute amendments 
that that really don't really get into the overall policy issue at stake. Uh, they're just sort of assuming that people, the members, uh, know something about it, but uh, they don't come to the floor to listen to what little debate does take place. So, you know, there's just uh, very little discussion going on, both in committee and on the floor. Uh, and and uh, as a result, you know, you do not have a broader understanding among members to begin with, but also the general public as a result, you know, of what the major policy issue is here and what, how Congress is trying to solve it. Talk about, if you could, the, the relationship between hyper-partisanship and this change in the House and the House way of doing business. Yeah. Uh, my, it, uh, my, my book is purposely uh, called Changing Cultures in Congress, referring to the fact that uh, I've seen in my tenure uh, in Washington, which is now 42 years altogether, I've been 22 years in the think tank world, but uh, a change in culture from a culture of legislating to a culture of campaigning. And what I call hyperpartisanship is what happened when Congress decided that it was less interested in uh, having good policy and more interested in retaining or, or regaining power uh, and control, especially in, in the House of Representatives. So what you see now is that at, on most bills of any major import, you will have party-line votes both in committees and on the floor, and very little room in between for bipartisan compromise uh, that is allowed. In fact, uh, sometimes the leadership will even discourage members from reaching across the aisle to the somebody in the other party because we don't want to give that other party any kind of credit for what we're trying to do here. And so, uh, you know, that's uh, that's the sad state of affairs where you've really lost the ability uh, f- for across-the-aisle compromises, deliberation, and, and bipartisan solutions. Anybody who follows Washington at all and follows uh, congressional races uh, know about the uh, role of money and raising money and the time that that must take. Uh, that's got to be a factor in all of this. It's very much so part of the the, the reason that we've gone towards a culture of campaigning uh, is because members know that at the very next election uh, they could be voted out of office, and so they are encouraged by their leadership. Both both parties uh, do this to uh, spend three or four hours a day going over across the street to your campaign, your national campaign committees and dialing for dollars. In other words, calling up people that might be contributing to your campaign, to your leadership pack. If you are a chairman of a committee, you're expected to raise so much more money than you would for your own campaign to to, to contribute to the party coffers as well. So this is something that takes an inordinate amount of time. It's why members also want to get back to their districts uh, as, as often as they can, and so that's why you tend to have the three three-day work weeks quite often Tuesdays through Thursdays. They come in on a Monday night and maybe have a couple of votes, but then by Thursday afternoon, quite often, they're back to their districts because they have to do the campaigning and the fundraising there as well. One of the the quotes that I I took from your works, you talk about the top-down micromanaging of the legislative uh, process, discouraging members from developing expertise. Uh, Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, I would start with the first of all talking about uh, the fact that at least Republicans have had term limits on committee and subcommittee chairs, and so if you uh, spend three consecutive 
Congresses, in other words, six years as a chairman of a committee or subcommittee, you have to then step down. So it's just when you're sort of learning the the ropes as a as a chairman that you're you're asked to uh, to leave that position. So that, I mean that's part of the reason that committees are much weaker now and why uh, they tend to uh, rely more on the leadership to give the signals. But then you know it's also the leadership looking out for what issues are going to be best in helping us to raise money with the various interest groups and so on. So that's that's where the the micromanaging comes from the from the top down and and why it's happening it's it's all tied in with the culture of campaigning i know in the past uh, you and i through through history we saw a strong committee chair who uh, developed really quite good expertise great expertise such as in ways and means and and other places you're not seeing that with the, with the rotation now yeah that's very much the case in fact i you know it's kind of sad to see some of these uh chairmen who uh, over two or three years or uh, congresses i mean over about 6 years they've developed some good expertise and then they uh, they realize that their time is up and so they retire i mean they could still be providing valuable assistance but you know they sort of been to the to the mountain and now they're just told to sort of toil at the at the base of the mountain and and help raise money and so on but uh, it's you know it's not an incentive to uh to really continue to continue to contribute to the institution and to the country. One of the things I, I wanted to talk about it, that you discuss as well is the, the role of Congress, specifically the House, in addressing legislation, promoting legislation, considering legislation, and their role of oversight on the other branches of government. Mm-hmm. Um, those don't automatically appear to be in conflict, but they are if you have limited time. Exactly. And so what we see now is for a lot of members, they think that oversight is just a matter of uh, investigative oversight, trying to uh, the whole gotcha thing. If you have a president of the opposite party and you have majority control of uh, of uh, the House or Senate uh, and you have that power in committees, it's, uh, you know, it's trying to find... Uh, scandals, waste, fraud, abuse, other kinds of scandals. And uh, as a result, you know, we're losing track of what I call programmatic oversight, where is a policy working, where Congress might have enacted this legislation 10 or 20 years ago, but Congress has sort of lost track of, of how it's being carried out, whether it's achieving its its goals, its original goals. And so one of the things that I have recommended in my book is that Congress get to what I would call a culture of governing that means more oversight where Congress has a much better idea through its own uh, committee oversight as well as uh, broader discussions taking place, you know, as to what the nature of the problem is and how Congress might best, you know, approach solving that problem or resetting legislation that's been uh, overlooked for some time and and, uh, Congress has not paid close enough attention to it. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders 
in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We're coming up on a deadline on Friday. It seems like uh, about every few months we have a deadline on possible, at least partial government uh, shutdown. Uh, these seem to be re- reoccurring um, more and more often. Talk about why this happens, how this happens. You know, give a, a layperson out here a, a, a primer on what's going on here. Yeah. One of the things that I've uh, always held is that Congress is not functioning properly if it cannot do its basic work. And that means getting all 12 appropriations bills hopefully enacted into law by October 1st, which is the beginning of a new fiscal year. And yet over the last 10 years, uh, this is the first time, I think this year, that we've even gotten five of the 12 bills enacted into law before October 1st. So I mean, that's something of a miracle, but uh, it doesn't speak well of Congress that you still got uh, seven other uh, bills that are hanging out there, and they're going to have to roll them together uh, in an omnibus, omnibus bill at some point. But uh, what that means then is that Congress operates in the interim on what are called continuing resolutions, CRs. What that means is that we will continue to operate the government, that which has not yet been uh, enacted into law as a new appropriations bill, at last year's level uh, for uh, so many weeks or whatever. So this latest uh, deadline is the uh, 21st of December. So we've got another fiscal cliff staring us in the face, and you saw the the White House meeting with uh, right. with President Trump and, and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, in which the president was sort of almost backed into a corner, say, "Okay, I'll take responsibility for shutting down the government because I want to show how important it is that we, you know, have the the wall on the southern border." Well, uh, you know, this this is kind of an unusual situation where he's already uh, expressed uh, responsibility for wanting to shut down the government if the the Democrats uh, don't help. Uh, in putting through the $5 billion that he wants instead of the $1.6 billion that the Senate has uh, already uh, acted on. So that's really what uh, these fiscal cliffs are about. Sometimes they're about the debt limit, too. I think that's going to come due in March. But uh, do we raise the debt limit? And uh, so that has caused uh, some uh, real heartache in the past, uh, and uh, Congress still hasn't figured out how to deal with that because nobody wants to vote for raising the debt, even though it's a matter of paying off bills you've already incurred. I know it's dangerous to generalize, but let me generalize for for a moment. Uh, you know, people out here in the heartland in Ohio and the Midwest, they're going, "What is going on?" You know, <laughs> can't they? We have to run our house on a budget. We have to run our business on a budget. You'd think that the government could run their business uh, on a budget, but there's also a, a view as you know, who cares? You know, they're going to come through and they're going to pass something at the last minute and somebody's going to cave. And so what? Uh, yeah. Is that, that, is tends, that, that fair? That tends to be the case eventually. But we've had uh, uh, m- most recently a 16-day uh, shutdown, 
few years back, and in '95, when the uh, Republicans first took control of the of the House and the Senate, we had uh, I think 22 days altogether, two different shutdowns that occurred. So uh, these things do have real impact uh, when they when they do occur and, and last for more than just a day or two and they, if they drag on for a week or more you know you're going to affect uh, the the markets you're going to affect uh, you know business and how it uh, is operate and so on so it, it really impacts uh, all across the country i mean people sometimes think well it's washington let them shut down and let those bureaucrats uh, you know go without a paycheck for a few weeks or something but no these are programs that are benefiting people across the country with all of the investigations at least talked about coming up with a new Democratic House, um, it doesn't seem like there's going to be much time for legislation. Well, I think that's why, you know, you see people like uh, Pelosi and uh, and Steny Hoyer, her, uh, you know, her uh, leader, right. who's going to be now the new majority leader, but talking about how they don't think that Congress should get into a mode of overreaching on investigations, that they've got a limited amount of time to show that they are capable of legislating where Republicans have failed. And so there's, you know, they're going to strive for some balance, uh, even though there's a lot of pressure on to even begin, you know, impeachment uh, proceedings or hearings uh, as soon as they come into power. But I don't think, you know, the Basically, what the leaders are urging their their followers in the Democratic Party is, let's wait to see what the Mueller report uh, turns up and so on, that we cannot be so caught up in, in going overboard on investigations that we lose track of some of the, some of the uh, legislative agenda that we want to enact uh, in the next two years. Without being too doomsday, uh, let's look at what might be done to turn this around. You've looked at it from a historical perspective, also a contemporary perspective, but you also have some suggestions. Talk about those. Yeah, my the main one, and I've just touched on it briefly already, and that is moving from you know this culture of campaigning that we're now in into a culture of governing, where the Congress takes a share of responsibility for how the government is run, and that does mean better oversight. It means five-day work weeks. Uh, what we have recommended uh, at another think tank where I'm associated is is uh, three weeks on, working five days a week, and then one week off and uh, operating in that manner. So you do have time to do the oversight, to have the broader discussions You know about these big picture, I call it big picture governing. Uh, we get too caught up in the, the legislative weeds with the uh, the amendments and so on that are tossed about that nobody, even even a lot of members don't understand what the what the picture is that you when you're proceeding with the bill. But start with the big picture and then you know work your way through after your members have a much better understanding, you know of what how these government programs are being run and what could be done to to help improve them or to abolish them if need be. What are we missing? Anything that we're missing from your analysis? Um, I don't get in. I, I know a lot of people get into such things as redistricting and as can I don't get into the campaign planning I mean we've talked about it here briefly and how that does detract from members ability to legislate when they're expected to raise you know spend sure. a, a third of their day or whatever uh, dialing for dollars but you know so I don't get into those things as much but uh, I think 
a lot of the members that are vying for the leadership positions, a lot of committee people and so on are saying the same things. That is, let's get back to the regular order. Let's have more committee control of the legislative process. Let's have greater deliberation. And some are even daring to say, let's have more bipartisan compromise and so on. Um, so the, you know, the rhetoric is quite often good. It's just that, uh, they don't, they just don't live up to it when they realize that, hey, we've got a, a two-year uh, horizon here to, to accomplish something substantively, and so we can't really take all kinds of time uh, debating and amending and so on. We have to really uh, run a tight ship here in order to get things uh, done in a two-year time span. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Today we've been talking to Donald Wolfensberger, a veteran of Capitol Hill, about the decline of Congress as a respected legislative body. He's a scholar and former congressional staffer for almost three decades and an author of a new book, Changing Cultures in Congress from Fair Play to Power Plays. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets.